The word this morning comes from the 78th Psalm, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The word of the Lord. The title of today's sermon is How to Outlive Yourself. How to Outlive Yourself. And as we look into the Word of God, we discover this morning a, a truth that it occurs again and again in the Word of God, but occurs very distinctly here in Psalm 78. And this is the truth that there are others who are looking at you, watching you, namely they are your children. Ten years ago, a, um, an article appeared in the Atlantic entitled, How the Cult of Self-Esteem is Ruining Our Kids. The Atlantic isn't known for its conservative stance, so this article took folks by surprise. Therapist Lori Gottlieb uh, said she observed a growing trend. Parents who work too hard to offer their kids choices, buttress their kids' self-esteem, and guard them from hardship. In the process, she claims that we're raising an entitled teacup generation of children that can't handle life's bumps and bruises, and so she challenges parents. These are her words. Underlying all this parental angst is the hopeful belief that if we make the right choices, that if we do things a certain way, our kids will turn out to be not just happy adults, but adults that make us happy. This is a misguided notion, she writes. We can protect our children from nasty classmates and bad grades and all kinds of rejection and their own limitations, but eventually they will bump up against these things anyway. In fact, by trying so hard to provide the perfectly happy childhood, we're just making it harder for our kids to actually grow up. Maybe we parents are the ones who have some growing up to do, she writes, and some letting go. That article causes any of us to rethink our parenting. This psalm will do the same, written by Asaph. Asaph, who was chosen by King David as a worship leader. He not only was musically gifted, but as you will see from this psalm, had the capacity, uh, the ability to write. And so he wrote poetry. He wrote 
psalms and songs. He evidently was effective because he had a team. Either they were his own biological children called the sons of Asaph, or they were a worship team of, of men who had risen to come around him, and he invested in them. It is from this psalm that I will draw two very basic principles this morning of how to outlive yourself, and in it you will discover a role that we play as a church, and so we will kind of lay all of our cards on the table and share with you our role as a church here at Grace, and then your role as parents. It's simple. There's nothing profound here. Our role is we tell you. We tell you. Uh, Asaph says, give ear, incline your ears. In other words, pay attention. In Asaph's day, God spoke primarily through prophets and uh, uh, worship leaders like him. Uh, Today, God speaks by his spirit through his son, Jesus Christ. By his spirit, he speaks through the word of God. By his spirit, he speaks through the church. And these experiences will often coalesce in different ways. And so you've come this morning not to hear my opinion on anything because that matters little. But you have come to hear the word of God and to hear God's perspective because that carries great weight. Asaph says, I will open my mouth. Uh, There is an intentionality about that, meaning no one else is going to speak for me. I will speak for myself. I will open my mouth. And then he does so in a way that is quite fascinating. Uh, If you don't get the context, you're going to miss the point. I ran across the story years ago. It's it's a funny one uh, about an old man who was walking along a road, a country road with his dog and his mule, when somebody just came around the corner and plowed all of them, the dog, the mule, and even hit the old man. Well, he decided he would sue the driver of the car. They end up in court uh, across from one another, and the driver's attorney, while the old man is on the stand, said, I need to ask you one question and just one. Did you, did you, at the scene of the accident, say you were perfectly fine? The old man said, well, I was walking along the road, When this car, and the attorney interrupted him and said, that's not what I asked you. Did you at the scene of the crime say you were perfectly fine? And the old man paused and said, well, I was walking along the road. And the attorney interrupted him one more time and spoke to the judge and said to the judge, I have asked this man one question. And that one question is, did he say he was perfectly fine? Now instruct him to answer the question. To which the judge said, I I think the old man has a story we might want to hear. And so the old man said, I was walking along the road, just me and my dog and my mule, when this car came out of nowhere, hit my dog, hit my mule, it hit me. 
He said, the man got out of the car and he had a gun. And he walked up and saw my dog was near dead and he shot it. And he saw that there was no hope for my mule and he shot it. And he came to me and I said, I'm perfectly fine. (laughs) The point is that the context carries significant weight, doesn't it? And so it does here because Asaph says something that seems to contradict. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Asaph says in one sentence, I'm going to say two things, but they're the same thing. I'm going to utter dark sayings of old that also happen to be glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders he has done. And if you're a thinking person and you read this text, you've got to wonder to yourself what could be both dark and glorious. What could be a dark saying of old that also happens to be a glorious deed of the Lord, his might and his wonders? If you read the rest of the psalm, Asaph talks about God's goodness. And so with your Bible open or with your device open, however it may be, we'll walk through the rest of the psalm together. Asaph speaks both of the frailty and faultiness of humanity and of the greatness, the goodness of God. He begins by saying God loved and established Israel, his audience. Uh, Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. And then he says, Israel sinned and rebelled, verses 10 and 11. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to the law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Israel sinned and rebelled. And he says, Israel, these people forgot God. What did they forget? In the sight, verses 12 through 16, of their fathers, he, God, performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with the cloud and all the night with the fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. God did some amazing things, didn't he? He led them across the Red Sea, but on dry ground, he did phenomenal things in their lives, but they forgot him. They forgot him. They forgot that. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, forgetting a sea splitting and you walking across it, but they did. Could I ask you this morning, what has he done for you lately? 
What is it that God has done? What prayer request has he answered? As I stood back there singing and looked to the right of the stage and saw grace in England, I thought, wow, God, look what you've done. Amen? Look what he's done. Look at the prayer request as he's, that he has answered. As I watched Terry Silver walk in in good health this morning, I thought as she walked through our doors, Lord, look what you've done. What has he done for you? Have, have you forgotten him? Have you forgotten the great things that he has done? Many of you know my wife's grandmother, Gogo, who lived with us until uh, we had to take her to the nursing home. Um, she's 89. She'll be 90 in December. Stage seven of dementia. Mind all over the place. And once a day, Either my daughter, my wife, or Wendy's mom is at that nursing home feeding her and spending time with her. Well, last week, Libby was over there, and she said that she had turned. She was in Gogo's room. Her name's Gogo. She turned Gogo a certain way, and Gogo was looking at the armoire where, you know, the little simple armoire where her clothes are, and all of a sudden, her gaze fixed, just fixed. Libby said so much that I spoke to her and she didn't respond. So I nudged her. I, shake, I shook her leg. She still didn't respond. I finally went around and said, Gogo, what are you looking at? And Gogo, looking into a cabinet, said, do you see him? And Libby said, who? And Gogo said, oh, he's wiping all their tears away. Why is it that Gogo, with her mind in the, uh, the, the, the stage of dementia in which it is, why is it that she is able to look into that and see that? Because when she was your age, she was sitting here seeking God. She was serving in the preschool, loving on kids. She loved Jesus when she was 50 and loved him when she was 60. She didn't forget him when she turned 70. And when cancer came her way, she still remembered God. She remembered him then so that now, regardless of the state of her mind, she still sees him now. Amen? Have you forgotten him in the busyness of your life? in the desires of your sinful nature, in the priorities misplaced, have you forgotten? When you forget God, you sin even more, yet they sin still more against him. Verses 17 through 20, rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Be careful that you demand of God something you crave. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And then God gave them what they craved. Wow. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain from heaven. 
Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust. Right? This is like going to Brasilia every day. That steakhouse, keeping the cart on green the whole time. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. Oh, God, never give us what we in our sinful desires crave. Amen? Romans 1 says God will turn you over to your desires. But before they had satisfied their craving while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. This is why this is a dark saying. Some of you would gladly dismiss this reality of God. If we fail to preach a God who burns in wrath against sin, we will, by dismissing the holiness of God, create a permissive culture of sin. We will... Just say, it's okay. Our call as pastors and staff like Asaph is to utter dark sayings of old, of the gratefulness of God and the awfulness of man, of the splendor, holiness, and majesty of God and the sinfulness of humanity. Now, if we stop right here, the message is very incomplete, but, but Asaph doesn't stop. And this is where you, you've said, oh, Jerry, this is so dark. This is so dark. The, uh, just, just read it. This, I cannot believe God would do that for them, and then they would forget. I just can't believe that. But look what happens. Yet he, if you write in your Bibles, you should just underline those two words. How many times in your life has God done a yet he? Yet he being what? Compassionate. Yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Do you know what our problem is? We think we're eternal. We think we're invincible. God is eternal. He is invincible. We forget we're not that, and God remembers we are. And we need to start thinking like he does, don't we? We need to realize our temporality, our finite reality. We need to realize we're, we're not all that. That's what Gottlieb was talking about in her article. We've spent years telling our kids they're all that. When the Bible says none of us are all that. We aren't. And so we need a God who is. You might say that Asaph is preaching the Old Testament version of the gospel. And we would summarize it in one line like this. The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me and so loved he was glad to die for me. That's the gospel. Our sin requires him to die. His heart does too. So, if we preach nothing else here at Grace, that's the heartbeat of all of the Bible. That's it. I'm privileged. We have a crew of Montreat students here today, and I'm privileged to teach Old Testament there again this semester. I enjoy it. 
I have a student who sits at the front and center every single time in my class. And any, all of you teachers know kids who by choice sit at the front are the best kids in the class. All right, you just assume. If they're going to sit near you, eh, they're good, right? They're, in, they're within spitting distance, which is not very good these days. But at any rate, they, that's the good student. And so, met this kid day one. His nationality is from India, it, it appears. Teach about God creating in Genesis 1 and 2, but then we get to Genesis 3 and everything just goes south, doesn't it? There's the fall and Adam and Eve blow it and they sin. And that day I would learn something about this kid I did not know before. Because when I got there, I am required, if I'm going to be faithful to Scripture, to teach that Genesis 3.15 in theology is called the first good news. Because in Genesis 3.15, when, when God is cursing uh, the ground and he's cursing childbirth, he never cursed Adam and Eve. And then he, he curses the serpent. He looks at that snake, that serpent, and he says something. And what he says to the snake uh, is that uh, there's going to be a woman in the woman, and she's going to have a child, and there's going to be an issue between you and her, uh, between your offspring and hers. You will crush, uh, you will strike him on the heel, and he will crush you on the head. Well, what in the world does that mean? What is that first good news? And I will describe to them that that is a prediction of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the woman refers to Mary who will have a child whose name is Jesus and on the cross Satan will strike his heel and but three days later when Jesus resurrects he will crush Satan's head and take the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And I have to be careful not to clear off a spot and preach. I get a little worked up. So as I'm teaching I look and this kid's eyes just start getting and big. And then I pause to see if there are questions. And he said, almost just without trying. When I came to Montreat, I came as an atheist. Are you telling me that God knew they would sin and he was ready for it? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. And I had said to them that Jesus, when he was the spoken word of creation, knew that the very act would result in his death. And he said, are you telling me that Jesus knew he would die when he created us? Yes. And he went, oh. Like, he just sat back in his chair. Please hear me, if in this church or in our culture we somehow minimize sin, we also minimize the necessity of a sacrifice to cover it. But if in our own thinking we, we realize that we're all riddled with a problem called sin and on our best day we, we mess up and we struggle, then somebody somewhere needs to step in and do something about it, amen? We need help. Our job here 
is to say that to you. We tell you that again and again. So what is your job? You tell them. Look at verse four. We will not hide them from their children, these dark sands of old, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So Alan Michael is sitting in the service with his wife. He's our family pastor. He's an amazing team. Alex is with your kids right now if they're in kids' worship, uh, preaching the word to them. He and Alex work together at 11 a.m. Alan Michael will be in there preaching that. Does a phenomenal job. But still, we get one to two hours a week with your kids. That's it. That's it. So we tell you and you tell them. Verses 5 through 8, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is how faith is built, one day at a time and one generation at a time. That's how it's built. Notice there are four generations mentioned here. You have fathers, children, children yet unborn, and their children. If you want to outlive yourself, then preach the gospel to your kids. If you want to outlive yourself. Now, if you want to see a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 6 that Alan Michael preached from while I was on sabbatical, in Deuteronomy 6, if you don't repent, four generations are listed there that your sin trickles down to. I would say it's more like a Russian waterfall that cascades into a growing river that whatever you did poorly at, your kids will do worse and your grandkids will do even worse and your great-grandkids will find an even worse way to commit the sin that you would not repent of as a mom and dad. Teach your children. This is how you outlive your own life. You say, Jerry, I'm sitting here. I feel like I failed at this. Okay, repent and call your kids and say, I'm sorry. If they're still living with you, gather them around. It'd be amazing what God would do if they heard, I apologize for not doing this. God could begin a revival right there in your own home and do a work that would blow your mind. A major research project called the National Study of Youth and Religion found the following three factors contribute to a child owning their faith as a young adult. Listen to these three. Number one, the child's parents practice the faith in home and daily life, not just in public church settings. So the parents practiced what they preached. Number two, the child had at least one significant adult mentor or friend other than parents who practiced the faith seriously. So you did it and your, your kids had somebody else speak into their life. Here at Grace, how our kids' ministries are structured are this. If your kid is next door right now, they're in a big group in a small group setting. In the big group, they're hearing from a gifted young preacher. In the small group setting, they're applying what they hear. 
with leaders who are committed to them. If you bring your kid to youth on a Wednesday night, there will be a large group setting. And then in a small group setting, your kid will be in a life group. 17 of them, life groups now, among our students, sitting around a table, doing life together, figuring out the hard stuff and talking about the, the, the stuff that, that, that maybe they're afraid to talk to you about. The third thing, the child had at least one significant spiritual experience before the age of 17. What does that mean? That means the reason at Grace, since our inception, we have prioritized preschool, children, and youth is that the majority of people who come to Christ do so before they graduate high school. Why not fish in those waters? Why not invest your time and your energy and your money in that place where you are more likely to reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ? Even as our church ages, we get younger on this end and older on this end. Our priority is still to reach young people with the gospel. It's why we started a preschool. Not because that's fun. Not because, oh, wow, we need something else to do around here. No, because our preschool is engineered to half of our kids only get to come because they got help getting into it. Because we got a story to tell. So I'm going to say something super, super as kind and gracious as I can. I'm going to look at the camera while I say it. We launched our online ministry years ago for shut-ins. And then all of a sudden through the pandemic, there became a lot of you. But some of you watch and you aren't. You are not shut in. And if you, by your own choice, and you have children, and you sit at home, explain to me how you're going to explain to them years down the road when you're dying for them to go to church when they're in college, why you didn't for two years. I love you, and I'm speaking truth to you right now that may be hard for you to stomach, and you may have just gotten up for a second cup of coffee or turned me off. But online church is an oxymoron. You say, Jerry, why does this matter? We have a son who's a freshman in App State. He lives on a co-ed hall. Do you know the requirement for him to go to the bathroom to shower is a pair of underwear? It's also the same requirement for the girls living on that hall. That's it. That's where he is today. When we were last there to take him out to dinner, we went up Monday on Labor Day, I walked up to his room and there's a men's bathroom and the sign on it says, to be used by men or those who determine that you are. You choose that. It took an entire paragraph to explain why. Because that whole thought process is anti-intellectual. 
The women's bathroom has a similar sign on it. And then they have a gender-neutral bathroom for those who don't know. And Trent loves that one because it's just for one person, he says. And he said, I don't care what they think I am. I get private (laughs) to myself. He said, all day, every day when it's open, I'm in it. (laughs) Making good use of an opportunity. A girl comes by to see Trent in his room. When she does, Trent's buddy from down here is over visiting. She assumes immediately that they're homosexual. Trent explains they aren't. Oh, you have a girlfriend, he says. She says, yeah. He shows her a picture. She hits on his girlfriend on his phone, the picture. Trent said, push back. She said, oh, I'm bisexual. Why do I say all of that? We pastor a church, I pastor a church, I lead a church where some of you sit every Sunday and you battle same-sex attraction. You are welcome here all day, every day. I'm glad you're here. We have tried to teach Trent to respect anyone. You don't have to believe what somebody believes to respect them. We've lost that in our culture. We've lost it. But my point is this. I pray every day, Lord, keep him. Why? It's one thing for him to be under my roof and walk with the Lord. It's a totally different thing for him to leave my house and still walk with the Lord. Amen? That's what we're raising our kids for. Psalm 78, verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's the goal. We want kids who set their hope in God. We want kids who set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So let me uh, just share Uh, three things. One is uh, in life groups about mid-semester, we're going to do something called a spiritual health assessment. Your elders have done this. Staff has done this. Ministry leaders and your life group leaders uh, uh, should have done this by now. This This looks at five spaces in life, and here they are. This is when we believe at Grace we're We're getting close to doing the job God's called us to do. When you as a family, you as an individual, look up to God daily through spiritual disciplines and weekly through corporate worship. Looking at oneself daily for a life that reflects the spirit. Looks across at others weekly in fellowship and accountability. Looks around at others daily, showing and sharing the gospel. And looks out for others by giving sacrificially of time, talent, and treasure. Those are our five measures that, okay, if somebody's doing this, we feel like, wow, they're they're walking with the Lord. Perfectly, no. Consistently, yeah. That's what we aim for. This measures that. This will be a way for you and your life group to figure that out and to grow. Number two, are you in a life group? Next Sunday, 16 leaders will be right there in our courtyard. After this service, you'll get to meet them and sign up right then to be in their life group. Say, Jerry, why do you hound a life group? Is it the only way to grow in your walk with the Lord? No, it's the way we've chosen here at Grace. There are other ways to do it. 
What happens in a life group? You gather around God's word and, and you talk about it and you share some of your hurts and your habits and your hangups and you grow. That's the point. It's not super fancy, it's not at all complicated. And three, I've already mentioned this, are you attending worship? I know you in the room are going, hello, I'm right here in front of you. The answer to that would be yes, and thank you. Not because of anything that it does for us. We, we don't set attendance goals here. We, uh, we don't have certain attendance measures we have to reach in order to be successful. No, no, our success is measured on those measures, period. Question, though, if you're sitting at home and maybe you're mad at me right now, and if you are, you may reach out to me, and if you do, I love you. You, you can't. You know I'm approachable and not far. I'm just going to say to you, there is no substitute for the gathered church. And I know COVID is high, and I know some of you are staying away, and you know I've always respected that, always. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. I'm just saying, some of you have somehow slipped away. And you need to be with the family of God. You need to be worshiping. Let's pray. Lord, it is good to be yours. And Father, I, I'm glad that in our finite space in this world, we can outlive ourselves. Father, I pray for people who are in the room or online and they are having something akin to what I had on Friday morning in a meeting of pastors from across the state. A convicting moment that called for a change of thinking if I was going to deal with what I just heard. I pray for that for people that by your grace they would grow and become who you've called them to be. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, I pray for anyone in this room who does not yet know you as his or her Savior, that like that young man in that Old Testament class, they would realize their lostness, their awful sin that characterizes us all, and be reminded that Jesus, you died on the cross to save them from their sin and themselves and give their life to you. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. If that is you, Adrian will be right here after this service. Come talk to him. He'd love to lead you to Jesus.